Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, which you are now tuned into our OITE slash our board review series. And we're on spine. We're just trying to cover the high-yield topics on spine. And so if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back to the podcast. Hit the subscribe button. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So since we talked about osteotomies, and I remember the first time I heard this or saw it as an answer on uh, on a question, I had no idea what they were referring to at all. Uh, Now I know a little bit more. Uh, but what are some types of the osteotomies that can use that can be used in patients with rigid sagittal or coronal uh, deformities or biplanar deformities? Uh, yeah, so just like you had mentioned with the deformity correction, um, adult spinal deformity and pediatric spinal deformity are two very different animals, even though in pediatric spinal deformity, and we'll go into this, you still may use some of these same uh, osteotomies, like a a Smith-Peat osteotomy is very common, or a Ponte osteotomy is very common for uh, just like an idiopathic scoliosis patient, where you're fusing like a T3 to L2 or uh, something like that. Uh, to gain a little bit more flexibility in the spine. But these adult spinal deformity patients oftentimes have very rigid spines that need a lot of correction. And depending on the amount of correction and how many levels are fused, you're going to choose your osteotomies accordingly. Uh, A lot of it is going to require a spine fellowship, which I am not in. Um, (laughs) But for for test-taking purposes, no, it's, it's critical to know which osteotomies provide the least amount of correction and which osteotomies provide the most amount of correction. So um, things like a partial facet joint resection uh, is um, going to offer about five degrees of correction per level. And that is really, you're just taking out part of the facet joint to allow more movement at that joint to help correct. If the spine is relatively flexible, you might get a little bit more than five degrees of correction, but you're not going to get much more than that. Um, A complete facet joint resection um, depends on what you're talking about, but you can get about 10 degrees of correction per level. And if you are planning on fusing five levels and you need 30 degrees of correction, then three Smith-Peterson osteotomies may do the job because each osteotomy is going to give you about 10 degrees of correction per level. And uh, that may be better than one large osteotomy like a pedicle subtraction osteotomy or an entire vertebral segment uh, osteotomy uh, to provide a large amount of correction in a short space. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting a little bit on a tangent here, but uh, going back to it. So the least amount is a partial facet joint resection. You get about five, five, maybe 10 degrees. 
Then a complete facet joint resection uh, is about 10 degrees, and that includes a ponte osteotomy, which is very similar to a Smith-Peterson osteotomy, but the pontes are classically done at unfused segments, so they will retain some of the flexibility of the spine, whereas a Smith-Peterson osteotomy is done at a fused segment of spine. The uh, Smith-Peterson osteotomy is the uh, is commonly done, and basically what you're doing is you're taking out the bottom half of the spinous process and uh, not the pedicles. You don't really touch the pedicles, but the, um, the lamina and the ligamentum flavum. And you take the, so the, the bottom half of the superior segment and the top half of the inferior segment. And you're taking out that kind of that block and closing that down. And as you close that angle down posteriorly, you see you get about 10 degrees of uh, correction into more lordosis with that sort of osteotomy. Um, then you get into a pedicle uh, subtraction osteotomy. And basically that is an osteotomy of all of the posterior elements and a wedge of, ver uh, of a vertebrae is removed. And so you have to remove the wedge, of the, the vertebral body wedge in order to allow that gap to close. Because even if you just take out the pedicle, the facet, the lamina, and the spinous process, if the vertebral body is still uh, in that kind of square segment, then you can't flex behind it. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to get a good fusion back there. So um, you have to take a wedge out of the vertebral body to allow that correction to happen. And these pedicle subtraction osteotomies are pretty powerful. You can get about 25 to 35 degrees of correction per level, but you have to be careful because that's a lot of correction for one level. And so these are really reserved for very stiff spines and very deformed spines that need a lot of correction in a short period of time. And then the last one is a vertebral column resection. And this is really reserved for this severe sagittal balance, chin on chest, kyphotic sort of patients. And these are the ones that require correction of about 45, maybe 50 degrees in one single segment. And it, you're basically, you're taking just like it says a vertebral column resection you're essentially taking out an entire portion of the spine, including the entire vertebral body, entire pedicle, entire lamina, and entire spinous process and correcting through that. So now instead of having, let's say, uh, 12 thoracic vertebrae and you need a really strong correction uh, in the thoracic spine, now they might have only 11 thoracic vertebrae or even 10 if you need to do a a major, major uh, correction there. So um, uh, just to summarize, facet joint resection, five degrees, uh, Ponte and Smith-Peterson osteotomy, 10 degrees, pedicle subtraction osteotomy, 30 degrees, and uh, an entire spinous, uh, spinal body uh, resection or a complete vertebral and disc resection is about 40 degrees of correction.
And I think yeah, I always that, found that stuff so confusing. <laughs> like the uh, and remember, they'll ask uh, you, they'll ask remember, you on the post, yeah, what, what they are. Yeah, they will. And I, I remember I was on like um, peds, and all the you know all the scoliosis guys were talking about like you know what levels they're going to fuse and do all these different osteotomies and ponty. I, I literally had no idea the entire. I probably went, I, I probably looked it up, but didn't really understand it, and went through it the whole time. I I, I kind of somewhat somewhat understand it now <laughs> like i understand yeah. it now but man like you know sometimes you gotta look at a couple of pictures and really stare at them before you before you get it yeah it's a if you really take part in if you're interested in spine more power to you and you and you look at this and it's not going to be um just like a standard oh this one i'm gonna just do a a vertebral body uh, a vertebral column resection and it'll be good. Like you might do uh, two or three Smith Peterson osteotomies in one section. One section might require a pedicle subtraction osteotomy. Another section might require just a facet partial facet joint resection. And it's all depending on where the deformity is, how rigid the spine is and how much correction you need. They're not going to get that nitpicky on the test, but they definitely will, uh, either show you a picture of a partially resected uh, spinous process and ask you what type of osteotomy is this? Or they'll ask you in the question, you uh, note that the patient has 30 degrees of rigid deformity at a single spine segment. What osteotomy would best treat this deformity? And you need to know that a Smith-Peterson isn't strong enough, a vertebral column resection will overcorrect, and a pedicle subtraction osteotomy will give you that 30 degrees of correction that you need. So it's good to know them for test-taking purposes and for in your future career if you decide to go into spine, but um, it's not they're not going to get too nitpicky on how many Smith-Peterson osteotomies are going to be used for this, this spinal uh reconstruction or something like that yeah yeah that's what i'm hoping <laughs> they don't ask <laughs> no it, it won't get it won't get that bad but they um they'll try and trip you up and and ask you how much should be resected or how much shouldn't and it's just it's good to know uh what what osteotomy possibilities you have and so i i think that that's it for uh, adult spinal deformity, at least there's, there's a few anterior procedures and uh, a few combined procedures that you can do, um, for really the anterior, the combined anterior and posterior procedures are saved for, uh, huge curves, like 70 or 90 degree curves. Um, are, are ones that you're going to go anterior as well, because what you're going to have to do is, uh, along with those osteotomies, you're going to need to jack up the spine with a, with a, uh, cage that you can expand, uh, to help get some of that, uh, lordosis back. So, um, I don't, I don't think that they're going to test too much on which cases need anterior or combined procedures, but still good to know that, um, it's not just a posterior based, uh, approach, but you can go anterior as well. Yeah. 
And um, I think that wraps it up for the uh, the spinal deformity that is. And then we, of course, we get to moving into some spine trauma, I guess, lumbar spine trauma. We talked about cervical spine trauma. We talked about like Jefferson fractures and facet dislocations. And now we're on a little bit lower part of the back. So I guess this is kind of start off with some just general anatomy, because I feel like if you understand some of this anatomy, they can kind of help you understand some of the pathoanatomy. Uh, what are the three column? We always hear about a three column model, uh, but what are the three columns in this three column model for the for the Denis classification for thoracolumbar injuries? So this is going to be uh, the next few things that we talk about are going to be part of a TLEX score. It's good to know the TLEX score uh, for test taking purposes, and we'll go over that once we're all done here, but. Uh, for the Denis classification of thoracolumbar injuries, you have the anterior, middle, and posterior columns. And they are essentially what they sound like. The anterior column is the more anterior portion of the spine, and the middle is the middle, and posterior is posterior. So the anterior column is going to consist of the anterior longitudinal ligament, the anterior half of the uh, annulus, and the vertebral body. The middle column is the posterior half of the vertebral body and the posterior longitudinal ligament. So essentially what you can think of is anterior and middle columns are the anterior half of the vertebral body and the posterior half of the vertebral body and the parts of and the ligaments that are attached to those. Then the posterior column is everything else, is the pedicle, the facet, the lamina, the spinous process, and all of the ligaments that combine those two, like the ligament of flavum, the interspinous ligament, and the posterior spinous ligament, or the posterior longitudinal ligament, I believe is what it's called. Um, and then uh, there's ways to describe these injuries to colleagues or uh, to your attending. Um, what are, when you're looking at like a CT scan, of somebody with thoracolumbar injury, um, what are some of the main types of fracture uh, description? Yeah, so one is gonna be a burst fracture. You also have compression fractures, uh, for which I think we did a kaifo on yesterday. Yeah, I'm on spot right now. Uh, we also have flexion distraction and you have a fracture dislocation and we'll kind of go through some of these. So what is the mechanism of a burst fracture? A uh, burst fracture is, I mean, just like, uh, honestly, this is, it's a stupid way to think about it, but it's how I think about it is um, if you ever hold a Skittle in your hand and you crush it between your fingers and you look at what it looks like, it looks exactly like a burst fracture. And that's exactly how burst fractures happen. They, they happen with axial compression on the spine, the anterior and middle columns are involved and you get a uh, burst type fracture pattern that you see on the axial CT scans um, where the pieces don't have anywhere to go except for bursting outward. They don't go up into the superior vertebral segment or down into the inferior vertebral segment. They go out. And whether that's out towards the uh, vena cava and abdominal aorta or posteriorly into the spinal column, they have to go somewhere. And uh, that's what a burst fracture is. The posterior column may or may not be involved. Um, but for just kind of general uh, purposes, a burst fracture essentially just includes 
the anterior and middle column. And then, uh, although they may sound the same, what is a what is the mechanism of a compression fracture? Yes, this is a little different. So this is going to be anterior flexing, like anterior flexion and loading. So this is instead of like the burst, where it's just mainly axial compression. Um, with a compression fracture, you're going to have anterior flexion and loading. So with this, you have a, the main injury is going to be kind of to the anterior column. Again, the anterior column being the ALL, the anterior half of the annulus, and the anterior half of the vertebral body. Um, so the middle column can remain intact. The posterior height is remain intact, but you have a loss of anterior height. So again, this is mostly and mainly an anterior column injury because you get flexion anteriorly. And this is one of those injuries that you can see, you know, when you have like older patients with those osteoporotic compression fractures, um, this is kind of that type of a, a fracture, what it can be. Now, what's the mechanism of a flexion distraction, otherwise known as a chance fracture? Uh, yeah, so that's going to be um, kind of essentially what it sounds like. You're going to get flexion of the spine. Um, so you're going to have a similar fracture pattern as a compression fracture because that's due to anterior flexion. But then you're also going to have so much force going through the spine that you get posterior distraction. And whether that is through the ligamentous complex or through the uh, pedicle, pars, lamina, and spinous process uh, is what is going to determine whether it's a bony chance fracture versus a flexion distraction injury. And uh, these will typically happen uh, in uh, like a car crash where they have a flexion moment over the seat belt, but it, uh, the posterior elements are able to distract because it, they're flexing so far over the seat belt. Um, and this is really a definition of a three column involvement and uh, essentially needs uh, surgical stabilization uh, in the future. And then uh, what is, uh, it may sound pretty uh, routine and straightforward, but essentially what's the mechanism of a fracture dislocation? Yeah, you know, that's the thing with like looking at, you know, these different types of fractures. Uh, the thing with the fracture dislocation is that the mechanism can vary, but all of the columns are involved. So the anterior column, the middle column, as well as the posterior column. And you can also get some vertebral translation. That's one of the main things to look at or look for. Again, fracture dislocation. So you have a dislocation or some translation of one um, vertebral body over the other. So that is the main difference between a fractured dislocation uh, and versus like a, a flexion distraction fracture. There's not any translation in a flexion distraction fracture, even though there is three column involvement, but in a fracture dislocation, there's actual vertebral translation, which is makes it go into that category of a fracture dislocation. Now, what is the, uh, back on to non-operative treatment, uh, what is the treatment of most lumbar spine fractures? Uh, so most of the time, uh, they can be treated with a short period of bed rest, uh, followed by uh, uh, immobilization in a TLSO for about three months. And what the TLSO does is it really just helps control the amount of flexion, extension, and rotation that is allowed uh, in the spine. Um, uh, 
if you really hate your patient, uh, you can do a single leg spica uh, attachment uh, to control lumbosacral motion uh, because uh, as the, the brace, even though it is thoracolumbo or sacral orthosis, um, there's, it doesn't do a great job of stabilizing the lower lumbar vertebrae and uh, how as they articulate with the sacrum. Um, but for, for the ones that are like L1, L2, L3 burst fractures uh, with minimal neurologic deficits and uh, no evolving neurologic changes and uh, an otherwise healthy patient, then a TLSO is, is a fine choice for treatment of these. And these patients typically do uh, very well. But Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you're enjoying these series. You know, if you like it, please tell a friend, tell your program director, tell everybody, tell everybody that you are enjoying learning uh, on your drives or on your walks or whenever you're listening to this. And if you have not already, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Make sure you subscribe to the channel so you get updated with every single episode that we drop. All right, guys and ladies, until next time.